Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. It's been a very, very hot week. We were sweltering in the office on press day, but uh, it was a bit hotter in Greece where uh, where all hell has been breaking loose uh, and we've actually written about that. And we might even talk about it today, might we, Graham? We might force ourselves to, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, joining me today are Graham. Hello, John. Uh, how you doing? Good, and you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, James Norrison has written a, a feature this week looking at UK market valuations. How you doing, James? Very well, thanks, John. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, a little bit cooler today, so that's nice. Mm. Uh, and uh, Dom over in the control room, Dom uh, Toms, how are you doing, mate? Doing well, thanks. Good, good, good. Okay, so yeah, as I said, we're going to talk to James in a minute about the UK uh, equity market valuation market tactics report he's written for us this week. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk to Philip Ryland uh, on the phone uh, very shortly about the cover feature, um, which is getting inside the mind of Warren Buffett. We've got a wonderful piece of Monty Python-esque uh, artwork on it the cover. It is a brilliant this cover this week, John. Yeah, I really Love do that. like it. I really do like it. He, uh, he comes up, Trump's old parameter, our designer mm. sometimes, and this is, this is a corker. We're going to have a little chat. Well, we're not going to have a little chat. I'm just going to tell you because we've actually done a video this week talking about it, but we've got the tips of the year halfway performers and we are smashing it. So are we not, Graham? What we... Algie Hall has been dancing around the office this week, he our has. tips editor, um, on the back of this. We are, yeah, no, really, it's quite impressive. What have we done? So we have 17.5% absolute performance, uh, 14.1% okay. outperformance. Yeah. Because the FTSE all share has done... Two or 3%. Not a great deal. Not a great deal. I'll, I'll talk about this briefly. Um, yeah. Go and watch a video because uh, you'll, you'll hear a lot more detail from Algie and a lot of the writers that he's interviewed who've actually written these tips this year. But we've we've played it safe this year. We had a couple of um, couple of horror stories last year which really dragged the performance of the tips of the year down. So we played it safe across the board. Um, we went we went on a real value tip this year. Uh, it, it has to be said, value's not been a great performing uh, uh, strategy over over the past few years. Um, but yeah, it's working for us so far. Working mm. for us. We I think there's one fund manager in the UK that's beating us, which is extraordinary. Yeah, really. no, no wonder Algie's been dancing around the office. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think maybe uh, we're not getting paid enough. Yeah. But there you go. There you go. So uh, that's the third feature. Let's not talk about that. Graham, let's talk uh, Let's talk news. So, uh, I mean, we might as well start Oof. with Greece. We never. We, we always say we're not going to talk about it, but I, I mean, it's coming to a head now. It is coming to a head, yeah. Um, we Obviously, we spoke about it at some length last week. Um, and and then the day after we, we, we recorded last week, um, uh, Alexis Tsipras went out and announced this uh, referendum. Yeah. It took people by surprise a little bit, I think. But well, that, uh, he decided... Because... But I thought that's because it took me by surprise because the deal that had been offered was off the table. The deal they were voting for was off the table. Yeah, well, that that is the utter confusion around this now is is that the the, the Greek people are being asked to vote yes or no on a very confusing question about something that is no longer an option. So yeah, where we're going with that, I don't know. But the EU leaders have all been out in force this week and basically telling the Greek people that it's really yes or no as to whether they really want to stay in the Eurozone or not. Yeah, and Spiros has come out today and said that's essentially blackmail. I mean, they, we yeah, talked well, blackmail last week, but mm. he's saying, you know, you're basically putting the frighteners on on my electorate, yes. and uh, this is this is outrageous. And he, I mean, the indications are that Tsipras and uh, Varoufakis, the finance minister, both, well, Varoufakis has definitely said today that he will resign if there's a yes vote. But surely he's had enough um, anyway. <laughs> well, you would have thought he might be on his way out anyway. And Tsipras, <laughs> people are sort of saying that, that he will probably resign if there's a yes. So they're campaigning for no, which the EU is telling them, essentially means that you're campaigning to 
withdraw from the Eurozone. Yeah, I've got, to, I've got to admit, I can't keep up with it. There's not enough hours in the day to, to put a magazine like the Investors Chronicle together and keep up with the uh, the goings on in Greece no, at the same time. There really isn't. It's um, been, it has been, you know, back and forth all week. It seems to have calmed down a bit today just because there's nothing, you know, it's sort of Euro, EU have said basically they're not going to talk to Greece again until the result of the referendum is known. That's going to be Sunday night, Monday morning. So, you know, who knows? If there's, mm. a, if there's a no vote, people are saying markets might fall out of bed a bit on Monday morning but yeah my markets have been falling out of bed for several weeks now yeah. in fact I, I I broke my editorial this week about about Greece mm. which I sort of vowed never to do but I thought you know I can't ignore that Once. elephant in the room yeah. Yeah. any longer um but yeah I think since uh when did I say well, it was probably April mm. the FTSE's down eight percent uh no seven percent the uh Euro stocks 50's down eight you know so I mean the markets have been falling out of bed for a while oh yeah and they bounced um I think it was yesterday or the day yesterday. before because Spiros had said he'll concede some of the demands, but then the European heads had turned around and said, we don't care. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it does seem to have got to the point of, you know, basically he said, she said, yeah. playground politics. Exactly. Now. And I, I just, I can't keep up with it. No. Polls are suggesting that a yes vote will win. You know, it's going to be close still, but polls are suggesting that a yes vote will win. So that means that we're going to be faced with a new government there as well. You know, more uncertainty is, is going to be the name of the game for if, if that's the case. So, so, I mean, you've got uncertainty whether there's a no or a yes, basically. Yeah. Markets don't like that. So, I mean, you know, I think mm. I think my view, which I've written in the editorial this week, is, you know, that, that uncertainty is going to dog us for a while. Mm. But what it doesn't mean... Um, is that markets are necessarily expensive and due a heavy fall. We'll come on to that in a minute uh, and talk about that with James because I think that's the crux of your reports, particularly with uh, the UK markets. So, uh... um, okay, let's have a quick look at seven days. I'm bored with Greece now. <laughs> uh, let's talk about F1 because we've got a couple of things here in the magazine. We, we actually, uh, Dan uh, Liberto went off to have a look at uh, Formula E, which yes. is racing at Battersea Park this week. Which weekend. is the electric racing Electric cars. racing, yes. Yeah. So we've got a, a, a nice little uh, blog on that. Um, I mean, the, the, the idea behind that is, unlike Formula One, this is technology that potentially translates into road cars. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, they're very hopeful that this will, A, you know, attract attention as a serious motor racing sport in its own right, B, uh, attract the attention of, uh, you know, car manufacturers, who can genuinely leverage it to prove they've got technology that will make road cars better yeah. uh, and see so convince people that electric cars don't go at three miles an hour yeah. and look like those ridiculous things that we see around London that the BBC drive. <laughs> <laughs> but are the, are, the, are, the, uh, are the electric cars noisy like the F1 cars? They, they kind of squeal. They do squeal. So yeah, they're kind of nice. I like added it. Added that in or is that No, is no, that no, it's real. Really? It's oh, real. Yeah, yeah, interesting. yeah. Interesting. But then, you know, F1 cars have been criticised this season for not being noisy enough because they changed the engine formula. Have they? Yeah, F1's in crisis. But nevertheless... Noise is always... That noise has always put me off. Awful. What, the big noise? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. People moan that it's not loud enough now. Really? Yeah, yeah, Because they, they went to uh, they went to turbos, which which make a slightly... Oh, they also make a sort of squealing it's sound. It's still quite loud, though. Yeah, not as loud as it used to be. <laughs> You know, if you're an F1 fan, that's what, you're in it for the noise, mate. You're in it for the noise. But <laughs> F1 is sort of a bit of a crossroads, both in terms of the sport itself, which mm. I have been following, but I must admit I'm finding increasingly dull. But in terms of the business itself, because, you know, Bernie Eccleston uh, getting a bit long in the tooth. Yes. You know, there's been a lot of talk this week about, you know, a uh, change of ownership. So that's why CVC may be selling. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know why they might be selling, but... Um, but it is interesting. It's mm. a big sport. Sky have got a big uh, uh, interest in it. They they essentially took over coverage of that from the BBC a few years back. Yep. Uh, they're they're rumoured to be a buyer. That's the rumour this week. I mean, over the last weekend, it was the, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, Stephen Ross, backed by Qatar, 
um, was thought to be lining up a deal. And then apparently Sky and maybe Liberty Global could be getting together to do a deal, which would obviously protect Sky's position in terms of broadcasting it. Three, yeah. uh, four and a half billion dollars is the price, to, pounds, in fact, is the price tag apparently. As a fan, if you buy it, sort it out, because it is, it is so dull at the moment. It is beyond belief. The, ele- okay, uh, the, the 10 minutes of the electric car racing I watched was much more interesting. <laughs> no, you see, um, I, I know very, very little, very, very little about Formula One. I don't follow it, but I suspect Lewis Hamilton will win the world championship this year. Well, it's either him or is Nico Rosberg. It's either him or... Team. It's probably going to be Lewis Hamilton. Hmm. Who knows? Nico Rosberg is a good driver. It's going to be one team, Mercedes. Yeah. That's that. Okay. In, talking of autos, interestingly enough, the, the figures coming out of the auto, UK automotive industry are quite impressive this week. Um, you know, not a people, surprise. People equate UK um, automotive with British Leyland and the like from the, back in the dark days. But um, the industry turnover was £69.5 billion last year. So what are, we, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about car sales. We're talking about... Turnover for the auto industry. So we're talking about auto, automotive manufacturer as well as the sort of specialist and engineering parts, businesses as well. Parts, parts businesses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're also talking about cars that are built on these shores for third party yeah, overseas yeah. Uh, manufacturers as well. Okay. So it's, um, you know, it is a big UK um, industry. It, it is indeed. I mean, you know, Formula One. Mm. A lot of the uh, the teams They're are based, based in, in the UK. I mean, it's, it is a, a centre of engineering excellence in that respect. And, and we know, you know, it's a centre of excellence for, for the more mainstream uh, car car mm. industry as well. So that's good. I mean, Dan, Dan wrote good about news. this a few weeks back in a, in a cover feature. Yeah. Uh, what do we call it? Profit Machines. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, UK well represented there. Have a look at that. Planning permission. Mm. So I'm, get, I'm getting uh, loft conversions done at the moment. And uh, the beauty of the UK's planning laws is that I can do that without getting planning permission. Permitted, Permitted development. development. Right. But, uh, yeah. but uh, not quite so simple if you're a fracker or a potash <laughs> developer. <laughs> no, slightly different scale, isn't it? So we've got two stories here. Yeah. Uh, that are kind of diametrically opposed in the outcomes. Mm, exactly. One from Lancashire and one from Yorkshire as well. Oh. Yeah. The Lancashire side of the, side of the Pennines, um, the Lancashire County Council knocked back uh, a second application from private shale gas explorer Quadria in the Blackpool area. This is the one that caused the earthquakes. The that, one that, that widely allegedly on. caused earthquakes, indeed. Allegedly. Sorry, they, allegedly. So they've been knocked back twice now, which is a, a bit of a blow to the fracking industry. Uh, and there's a couple of quota companies. Uh, Centrico's got a stake in Quadria. And also iGas Energy, which is on AIM, has a big acreage of, of, of shale prospects across okay. the north. So the iGas certainly shares, shares took a bit of a hit this week. So that's bad news for fracking. Over the Pennines in the North York Moors National Park, um, they've said yes to serious minerals, effectively developing the biggest biggest potash mine in the world, I think. In the North York Moors National underneath Park. Underneath the, the North. In the park, yeah. Underneath, underneath the North oh, York so it's underneath Moors it. National Park, yes. Oh, so, there's no, so it doesn't spoil the, the beautiful landscape? Uh, not all of it. <laughs> no. They're still going to build a minehead, but they will drill down. And they, they, there's, I mean, it's, it's a huge project. It's unlikely that Sirius themselves are going to still be owners of this by the time it produces potash in several years time because it's just too big yeah, um, yeah. but yeah they're going to drill down uh, collect dig the potash and then they transport it underground for about 35 miles up to Teesside okay well that That's, doesn't sound so bad well yeah let's wait and see yeah well okay. the, the North York Moors um, uh, National Park people have said yes yeah, well, I mean, that was never a clear-cut uh, outcome for no. that for that particular uh, project. And, you know, we, we've, we've been reasonably negative on mm. it for some time. I had a, a, a letter from a, a reader earlier who, who has picked this up on our change of view. We've gone to hold, but as I pointed out to him, uh, you know, the facts change, our views have to change with them. Yeah. I think that's the way markets work And this, this has been an emotive stock. 
it's emotive and you know it's been a coin toss really Mm, yeah it's been a binary bet leading up to this decision on tuesday the shares had fallen you know from 25p down to 10 or 11 12 and ticked up a bit and then they leapt on 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 wednesday morning so uh well it's a volatile stock but there's a long long way to go until they get any of this potash out of the ground indeed indeed so i mean you know plan permission is uh certainly no guarantee of commercial success over the long term so you know again i think you have to Really qualify your your view of this company if you're if you're if you're mm. in it and you know understand how the fundraisings that are going to need to happen might affect your your shareholding in the years ahead. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly not a clear cut winner, uh, yeah. even even today. And we and we actually got in trouble uh, with this company a few years back uh, anyway because we we made the <laughs> unprecedented decision to put a buy and a sell on the same company in the tip <clears throat> section. Such was the difference of opinion on on Sirius's prospects in within our, the in team. Our, within the team mm. uh, and it does happen you mm. know we don't all think exactly the same thing all the time and uh, yeah we got some uh, got some angry got, emails about that we got a lot a lot of attention for that didn't we Tom yeah I don't regret it no but I wouldn't do it in the tip section in the future <laughs> I think these kind of de- I like these kind of debates I think these are really healthy to, to you know uh, a proper functioning stock market. I think you need mm. to understand both the bull and bear cases. Yeah, if you're buying a share, serious. You know, you, I think you had to understand both sides of that equation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it, just, it is an emotive stock, and it has been for many years. And, and you know, and that, that sort of debate is healthy within, yeah. within our team, and it was what helps us. Um, Indeed come to conclusions indeed i mean just in terms of quadrilla i mean the whole fracking thing mm. you know so we, we've obviously had this big discovery horse hill uh down in the south uh, of England. the wheeled sussex I mean, you know yeah. is this is this a reflection of the the fears uh the oil exploration uh has within the population at large and and does this potentially have a read across to what's going on down in the south coast do you think it may well do. I mean, this, this, there was a great deal of uh, local opposition uh, in, in the Preston and Blackpool area to this. And, and the plans were knocked back specifically on the impact on the local landscape and noise impact on local communities. Yeah. So, and that is not going to be any different in the Sussex Weald, is it? No, so, no. Yeah. And of course, wonder. we've also had the discussions about airports this week as in, mm. in both that region and obviously uh, the west of London as yep. well. So, yeah, I mean, it, uh, NIMBYism is alive and well and, uh, you know. Certainly, uh, it always will be, John. Absolutely. Always and obviously, the other big news story this week, uh, the, the tragic news story, mm. uh, obviously, what's happened in Tunisia, which uh, yep. has obviously had a big, big hit on the, the tour operators who are unfortunately involved in, in the terrorism out there. Horrible, um, yes. Really horrible. And Greece has had an impact too on uh on the travel businesses I yeah think people are better nervous about going there and it's a bit, obviously a big holiday destination yeah so. and then there's been big weakness in the in the travel stocks over the past week to tunisian um uh, event and it certainly didn't help and it just proves that you know sometimes people were saying oh these you know these stocks look cheap when they were trading up to this these events uh it's sort of like mid mid to high single digit pe's but really you know they are they are the, that price for a reason because they yeah. are susceptible to external factors at any time there was a similar atrocity mm. in Tunisia a while back that, yeah. did, uh, you know, didn't involve British tourists, but but nevertheless scared tourists off. And yep. you know, it t- I think the evidence, the, tr- the history suggests that it takes a long time for uh, for particular countries to recover from these kind of things. Indeed, um, I right. mean, for a tour operator, I guess they can sort of siphon off their customers into different destinations, but mm. uh, nevertheless, I think the sentiment it gets a, yeah, gets and, a uh, pounding. At this stage of the season, you know, we're, we're pretty much at, at the summer peak now. I mean, it's difficult to change your your, your, your the, the capacity that quickly, I, I would imagine. But, Indeed. Yeah. I'm going to the Lake District. I'm going to Norway. Norway, mm. nice. Yeah. Wow. 
No, I don't know what to say there. We're about, you're going lily hammer, are you? No, we're not. No. Okay. okay. No, we've had enough lily hammer on this podcast. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's the news. Uh, James, let's talk valuations because uh, you've uh, you've crunched the numbers this week and uh, the conclusion is UK equities not looking too bad after all. Yeah. To start off with, I mean, uh, caveat heavily that a big shock could come in at any time. Um, but you can't account for that. But stuff. you can't account for that stuff. But just based on, a, on looking at past valuations um, uh, on, on a number of metrics that have been historically quite closely correlated with with future returns, it actually it, it, it doesn't look cheap, but it certainly doesn't look um, expensive. Basically, if, you know, if, you, if you're going to lose money on the stock market, it's not because it's overpriced now. It's because there's going to be some external factor. What, like Greece? Like Greece, yeah. <laughs> like Greece, um, for example. Although I think the general view that we, we express in the magazine this week is that Greece mm. uh, in and of itself is not going to be that external factor that, that knocks valuations for six. Um, China. <laughs> so that's a different mm. story altogether. We yeah. haven't really written about this week. Um, but uh, No, the only mention we had of China was in the numbers on the seven days page. This yeah, Shanghai Composite's down 20, 21%. In a week? In, no, it, no, three weeks. Three weeks. Oh, right, that's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, James. So um, tell us about the metrics that you look at that you think give us the clearest view of how UK equity valuations stack up against their historic uh, norms. In this report, I looked at... Um, you know, UK equities in, in isolation, I think you'd want to look at them um, against other asset classes as well. You want to look at your risk premium. But Sounds like to, something to write about the future. Yes, well, that's I, I've, I've mentioned that at the foot good, of the good. feature. Looking forward to it. Um, so it's, it was an interesting exercise, but uh, it, it left me with a few questions. Um, but but I say so for the FTSE 100, um, so I looked at based on um, the, the R squared, so the coefficient, the correlation coefficient, um, of of various data points of of, of annualised future returns on a one year, three year, and seven year basis for for the FTSE 100 and the FTSE All Share with various metrics, and they were based on a market tactics report that Dominic Picarda did over a year ago, and I just selected the ones which um, he'd found most relevant at the time. So I looked at the forward PE ratio, um, dividend yield, and price to peak earnings for FTSE 100, and for the FTSE All Share, dividend yield again, CAPE cyclically adjusted. Um, price earnings ratio and uh, price to book. Yeah, price um, to book. I think that's the one you mentioned the has the share. has the closest correlation with for the uh, FTSE all share. For the, the FTSE all share. share, yeah, not right. so much. It wasn't so predictive for the for the one hundred. Okay, so so what's it telling us exactly? What sort of returns can we uh, be looking forward to based on where these metrics sit? And uh, you know, is is there any any of those that are looking? particularly expensive or cheap? Well, it, it varies. So the, the price to book, actually, it suggests um, that the all share is, um, it's the most predictive. It's got a higher, the highest level of correlation with returns in the past. That's uh, that's suggesting um, sort of a double digit gains over the, um, so 16% over over a three year period and, well, and, and seven and a half over, over seven year period, which, which is perhaps on the high side, but remember we're looking at um, historical and it's slightly skewed well, I think it's quite a lot skewed by by what happened, you know, prior to the dot com boom. Yeah, and so that's so those they're annualised returns. They're annualised returns. So, so yeah, you know, sixteen and a half percent a year for three years, based on yeah. where that, that yeah. the level of price to book. Yes, uh, I don't see that happening to be honest. No, um, no, but it's a it's a it's a comfort factor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what I've done is is um, I've actually. Based on the the predictiveness, based on the the correlation coefficient, I've I've attached a weighting to each metric to give sort of a dirty average um, for the FTSE 100 and for the FTSE All Share. PB has been obviously the 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 
most predictive for the for the all share. So so that actually pulls the overall average for that up. But so the dirty average I would we've we've got here. Um, uh, we're looking at sort of eleven percent every year for three years for the all share, okay. and seven percent a year over seven years. So that's uh, possibly um, you know a bit optimistic, but but not you know totally outlandish either. Okay, uh, so so when let's talk about dividend yield. This one that interests mm. me, interests a lot of our readers because mm. uh, you know a lot of readers are interested in uh, the uh, income aspects of of equities, but. Dividend yield can also be a, a good indicator of future returns. Well, it's, returns. it's it's you know it's fundamentally it's um the the premium that when an investor looks at their return, it's one of the premiums they look at for how they value a share. So yeah. it's going to be correlated with uh, with value, uh, and and it is, it is is in fact it, it's one of the methods for looking at you know equity risk premium as well. Um, mm. Dividend yield. So uh, for the FTSE 100, very predictive. Um, uh, and what's it saying? It's uh, but it's saying for the FTSE 100 um, that based um, you know, the start of June when around the data with a div yield of 3.48 percent on the index as a whole. On the index of the whole FTSE 100, yep. the average. You know, we're looking at three over three years annualized real returns in the region of seven and a half percent. Um, over the seven-year outlook, um, that's smoothed out to three point six percent a year. But that doesn't sound a lot. That doesn't sound a lot. But that's no. kind of that's norms, really. Yeah. And I think a lot of private investors, in particular, overestimate the amount you could actually mm. expect in the way of total returns every year. So three point six percent a year doesn't sound a lot, but it's actually you know pretty well, you pretty standard that, then, when yeah. you compound yeah. that yeah. and reinvest those dividends. It's, yeah. it's, it actually and those are real returns as well. So yeah. so that is adjusting for inflation already. So okay. So, okay. So that's. Um, if, if it does seem a little on the low side um, for people who invest in the stock market to beat inflation, that's that was uh, included in the numbers. Yeah. Okay. All right. But interesting. Yeah. So uh, you know, I suggest you go away and uh, have a read of that because uh, you know, really get get a feel for where where the markets are in valuation terms. Um, I think we ought to go away and have a look at some other markets and see mm. what they stack up historically because the US is looking a bit pricier. That's um, you know, again, as we talk about external factors, um, the the US, for example, on on a, on a the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, uh, you know, that's 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 looking very toppy, sort of around twenty six, twenty seven, something like that, yeah. which is which is over its historic highs. But the thing is, is you know, Cape, uh, it's it's criticised as a bit of a blunt instrument, been overpriced for a year, and uh, how many U.S. professional investors you know, they were saying to their clients that they've missed, they'd got out of the markets looking expensive last year, they'd have missed bumper returns and run your profits, yeah. run yeah. your profits, yeah, basically. Um, so I think, think the, the the takeaway from from this really is is um, it was an interesting exercise. Uh, uh, the valuations it, it can inform your tactical asset allocation, but actually, you know, stay in the market um, over mm. the longer term. Um, it wouldn't be using this to time getting in and out. It's uh, it's sort of setting allocations, looking at your objectives and and what sort of mix to to achieve that with the least level of risk, which is. You know, one of the things I'll be looking at next. Yeah, no good. Well, thank you for that, James. Um, I mean, it give, does give us a crumb of comfort when we're looking at a situation like China or Greece or, you know, wherever else there's trouble in the world, and that's pretty much everywhere all the time, uh, and it always has been. So, uh, yeah, I think if we can, you know, ground ground our, our, our investment outlook in these kind of reports and these kind of figures then I think it, I think it's helpful and I think it's reassuring and I think it proves what we at the IC believe which is a you know you stick you, this is a long term game and uh, you know play, play it sensibly don't panic don't panic mm. wonderful alright thanks James and now we're going to move on to this week's cover feature which is uh, written by uh, Philip Ryland who's joining us on the telephone hello Philip hi John how are you I'm pretty good yeah enjoying the tennis uh, it was pretty warm, but yeah, I did enjoy it. Oh, you went to, you went to the tennis? I didn't realise you'd been. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was baking on number one court. Yesterday? Yeah. Wow, it was so hot. Ouch. It was, you're right. Yeah, okay. Well, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so yeah, this week's feature, uh, it's about Warren Buffett. 
It is indeed. Well, it's sort of about Warren Buffett, because as you say, it's a bit odd. We're, we're, we're sort of talking about Berkshire Hathaway, um, more, more perhaps than we're talking about Warren Buffett, but trying to get a glimpse into his mind to understand how he's built up such a successful business. So per- perhaps give us the premise of, of the feature and you know why, why you wrote it. Um, partly because I'm, uh, like so many people, I'm fascinated with Buffett. Um, the, the peg of the feature was that uh, Buffett gets written about an awful lot as if he's basically an investor. What we tend to forget is that he's built up, um, what is it, the third biggest company in the United States by mm. market capitalization. So really, he's a businessman. He's not an investor. He's a businessman. Now, he might say, well, you know, the two are one and the same. But uh, it seems to me that Berkshire Hathaway tends to get uh, forgotten about a little bit uh, while we all focus on Warren, Warren Buffett. Um, so, so we'll know him for his investments in things like Tesco and Kraft, but, but Berkshire Hathaway is a very different beast altogether. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a different beast altogether. Um, it started out as a vehicle for, um, for buying parts of businesses and has ended up more as a, as a, as a huge conglomerate for buying whole businesses. So the, uh, the, the investments for which he's famous, um, maybe he's infamous for Tesco, but he's famous for things like spotting American Express at the bottom, buying Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, that sort of thing. Um, so he's famous for these, long, these brilliant long-term investments, um, but his biggest achievement is to build up Berkshire Hathaway, and proof of that, I guess, is that the, uh, the long-term investments only account for about 20% of uh, Berkshire's 500 billions worth of assets, can you believe? And the 80%, the rest of it, is, um, is a, a number of huge businesses, Many of which, eight of which, if they were standalone companies, could get into the uh, into the Fortune 500 just by themselves. Okay, and the interesting thing, I guess, about about Buffett's businesses are that the way he's been able to acquire them is so he he began by buying textile mills, which he admits himself was a disaster, mm-hmm. but then then he went on to buying something altogether different, and that's really what's behind the success of Berkshire Hathaway. The success of Berkshire Hathaway was that he he started out as a value investor basically trying to buy low-quality companies where there was, there was a quick profit to be had. And that was, that was the story of Berkshire Hathaway, which was a, uh, a languishing textiles company. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, uh, with the help uh, quite likely, uh, well, most likely, of his vice chairman, a guy called Charlie Munger, who's less well-known than Buffett, but he's very important, somewhere along the way, Buffett kind of transformed his approach from, um, as I think he's Somewhere he has said was the effect that, you know, you should stop trying to buy ordinary businesses at wonderful prices and buy uh, wonderful businesses at ordinary prices or at fair prices. So the focus became the quality of the business, Mm. Uh, high quality business, high quality businesses which could be expected to produce um, reliable um, long term cash flows. Okay, okay. How could he afford to do that, though? And this was the thing that struck me when I looked at Warren Buffett uh, a few years back for an editorial I wrote. You know, everyone tries to emulate him. There's so many books out there that say, oh, you can be like Buffett, invest like Warren Buffett. But actually, the thing that he has um, that that I think a lot of people who try and emulate him don't have is enormous pots of cash to work with. And it was was his foray into insurance that have really underpinned that. Yeah, but kind of, he did that because, you know, he's smarter than the average investor. Um, You know, he kind of, at an early stage, I think he realized the, wonder, the wonderful possibilities of running an insurance company because, you know, the thing that insurance companies have, this magical thing, is, is their float, mm. is the premiums that they're paid up front um, in advance of having to pay out claims. And, you know, that float 
uh, is it's a lot of capital. And if the insurance company is making underwriting profits, in other words, if the claims, if in any given year the claims are less than the premiums, then the float, which is a pot of capital, effectively comes free. And, you know, this is, this is the important thing that Buffett twigged early on. Um, even while he was still a cigar butt investor, as it were, he, was, he, he became aware of the, of the potential of having um, uh, an, insurance, an insurance operation within his overall operations. Um, so that's what gave him his capital to begin with. Um, and it started giving him so much capital that rather than buy bits of companies, in a way, he had little choice but to buy the whole companies because he, you know, there was so much capital and he was becoming so, so successful so quickly. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so the lesson there is uh, if you can buy an insurance company. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what, is he, what he has essentially built, and the, I mean, this is sort of uh, the antithesis of sort of modern um, business school thinking about how you, how you build a large business. He's built a conglomerate. And, you know, we know going back to the 70s and 80s, conglomerates were quite popular and fell apart um, for, for various reasons. And, and, you know, he has made it a success. But I think, you know, you refer in the future in the feature to uh, actually what, what's going to happen to Bark Hathaway after uh, Warren Buffett retires. And, and you know, it's, it's perhaps the success he's had in building a conglomerate structure, which is why we should perhaps worry about the future of, of Bark Hathaway as well. Well, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um Conglomerates, as we know, conglomerates get a bad press. In the hands of Warren Buffett, however, conglomerates aren't necessarily bad. If you think of a conglomerate basically as um, uh, an enlarged investment portfolio, whereby rather than buying bits of the company, you buy the whole companies, the whole company, then the logic kind of hangs together. But it only hangs together if you're as good as Buffett. Um, So Berkshire Hathaway hung together brilliantly, uh, or does hang together does hang together brilliantly while Buffett is in charge. And is, is this a cultural thing? Is it something you know you think, unique you to Buffett that has allowed him to manage a conglomerate structure effectively? Cultural to the extent that if you look, if you believe what Warren Buffett says, Buffett and Munger put a big emphasis on this notion of, of on this notion of trust, mm. on this notion of liking the people you're doing business with, liking the people uh, who you hire as managers. Um, I mean, there's a quote in the feature, and, and it's a fairly well-known quote, I think, where Munger talks about running Berkshire on a seam. What is it? A seamless network of no, it's a seamless web of trust, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and um, you know, he also Buffett. Uh, sorry, Munger also says quite rightly that. Uh, I mean, I'm quoting here because I'm looking at the quote. He says that uh, good character is very efficient. If you can trust people, your systems can be way simpler, way more simple which means they can be cheap. So, you know, if you have good people and they like working for you and you like them and you give them lots of autonomy and you pay them well and blah-de-blah, then the whole thing can work wonderfully. But one is never quite sure to what extent it's cause and what is to, what extent it's, what is, to what extent it's effect. Um, so I'm never really quite sure to the extent that Buffett has now become, simply become a cheerleader for his businesses. Mm. Uh, and indeed... One asks the question: Well, are the businesses really quite as good now as uh, as he as he says they are? Uh, and that's partly because the nature of the the nature of the beast, the nature of Berkshire Hathaway, has changed in the past. Um, I don't know five five years, ten years certainly, but maybe even five years. When it's moved, it's much more of a utility now than it ever used to be. 
Uh, it still has brilliant companies in there, but the brilliant companies are fewer and farther be- further between. And now, basically, it's, 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 it's three business streams. It's, it's an insurance company. Um, it's a, uh, a, rail, uh, a freight train company. And it's a provider of um, a, a power supply company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was fascinated by the, uh, by the point you make about how much of uh, Buffett's success is, is, is not actually down to Buffett, but good luck. Uh, you know, he, he's sort of timing the, the, the 50 years in which he's been running Berkshire being, you know, a, a golden era for, for the US economy. And he, he's simply, you know, ridden along mm. with that. You know, I, I find these things quite, quite fascinating. Because uh, yeah, it's sort of philosophical sure. in when it comes to investment. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Munger talks about these. Munger focuses on these four four factors that uh, that, that that made Buffett uh, and Berkshire great. And one of them was he talks about the consu- uh, the constructive pecu- peculiarities of Buffett, which I think basically is another way of saying that Buffett is a genius, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, then we talk about then he talks about the the constructive peculiarities peculiarities of Berkshire. And that's basically about Buffett's decision to build a thing, build a conglomerate around insurance company operations. Then Munger also talks about uh, good luck. But, you know, look, in talking about that good luck, uh, I think, I mean, I'm looking at the figure now that uh, in the 50 years that um, Buffett has run Berkshire, the tailwind that's, uh, that the U.S. stock market provided uh, was a compound growth rate of 9.9% a year. Okay, that's pretty good, damn good. But in that period, and we're talking about a 50-year period now, Buffett has managed to get twice that rate. So, okay, the market has been a substantial, a substantial factor in his favor. Um, but, you know, you just start compounding the difference between, in round terms, 10% and 20% over 50 years and see how much extra you end up with. Yeah, um, so, a lot. You know, we, we kind of... The, one shouldn't one shouldn't ignore good luck. Good luck is always a big factor, but there does seem to be something rather special about uh, about Buffett and Berkshire. Mm, absolutely, uh, and uh, as I said, I think that's why you, you're perhaps concerned that when he uh, when he and, and Charlie Munger retire, uh, things might change a bit. Um, and perhaps it will start to look retire, John. Retire. <laughs> um, perhaps the you know the business will go down more more the lines that you know we, we're more used to uh, large businesses being run uh, teams of consultants and non-execs and 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 you know the special the specialness of it will disappear. Yeah, well, we we know it won't get better. I mean, in a, in a sense, it can't get better. We know it can't get better. If it gets bigger, it will get slower. Uh, but meanwhile, in the absence of Buffett. Um, it just it won't be easier it's a bit like you know the analogy i suppose would be manchester united after alex ferguson only multiplied a thousand times it's that sort of scale uh, when when someone as influential influential as buffett leaves the business the business it simply can't get better so the best it can do is stay on track um but the likelihood is uh it's going to get worse especially when you think that you know there are all sorts of reasons why it could get worse mm. Mm, absolutely. Okay. Um, well, thank mm-hmm. you, thank you, Philip. Um, as I said, it's a, it's a fascinating feature. I, I really enjoy reading it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's not the usual. It's not a usual fare um, at all. Um, but it is a really interesting way of thinking about companies and and uh, the, the way they run. So thank you, thank you very much, Philip. Thanks for those kind words, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, 
That, I think, uh, pretty much uh, covers what we want to talk about on today's podcast. There is, of course, plenty more in the magazine, as I say every week. I'm not going to start banging the desk, Dom. Don't worry. Uh, lots of results. Uh, not as many as uh, there have been for uh, for some weeks, but we, we're, we're still, still pretty busy. Uh, personal finance uh, section, uh, stuffed full of good stuff as usual, and they will be talking about that on their podcast tomorrow. Pick it up. You won't miss the cover. It's very unusual. Bit of Monty Python uh, meets uh, Roy Lichtenstein. All good news agents, £4.50. And uh, we'll chat again next week. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.